That was a lot of reading. Thank you, Natalie. How are we doing, everybody? Good? It's good to see you. My name is Jason. I'm the pastor here. Glad you're with us today in church. We're taking the, the fall to study uh, the stories of the first Christians. We call them the first Christians because they were the first Christians after Jesus resurrected and ascended. Started with about 120 of them and then began to spread and grow. And we find the stories of these first Christians in a New Testament book of the Bible named Acts. It was not originally intended to be a book of the Bible. It was just a letter uh, written to uh, a skeptic of Christianity, and, and so, but it then became a book of the Bible. And so we find the stories of these first Christians in the New Testament book of Acts. And the reason that we're reading their stories is because we want to know what caused the message of Jesus and the church to grow and spread like wildfire. What did they have that we don't have? You know, what did they do that, that we don't do? That was impressive right there. <laughs> and today, um, we get to the story of the first miracle, the first miracle. Peter and John were disciples with Jesus, and now they are doing the kinds of things that he did. They, in this story, heal a man who had been crippled from birth. And you would think that everyone would be ecstatic about this, that someone had been healed, that a crippled man had been healed. You would think everyone would be happy, but just like with Jesus, the religious leaders, the religious establishment were not, and so they had Peter and John arrested. And so you have the first miracle, and then you have the first persecution of, of the Christians. And so in these verses today that, that we have read together, there are there's really a lot of things that we could pull out to learn about the life that we're living now, the world that we're living in now, and uh, how we can do the things they did, those types of things. There's a lot we could pick out, but I want to, for the time that we have today, just highlight two specifically that we see in the story. I, I think from the story of Peter and John and the first miracle, we see two things. Number one, we see how Christians respond to suffering, how Christians respond to suffering, and then we also can learn how Christians are viewed by others, how Christians respond to suffering and how Christians are viewed by others. And so I want to talk about that uh, a little bit today. First, let's, let's talk about how Christians, how we, if we're here today and we are a Christian, based on the example that we see of the first Christians, let's talk a little bit about how we should respond to suffering. How, how should we respond? I think there's a, a philosophy that is widely accepted in our country, but especially in the more religious parts of our country, which I still don't exactly know how to qualify Louisville. I've lived here now 18 years, and I don't feel like I'm in the South because I grew up in the South. But maybe if you were raised here, you feel like you're in the South. I don't know. I, I still don't know exactly how to qualify Louisville, so, so maybe you can help me with that one day. But I don't feel like necessarily we're in the Bible Belt, but you can get sweet tea. So I don't know. You know what I mean? It's like I'm not exactly sure. But I think that especially in the more religious parts of our country, there is this philosophy that poor people, people living below the poverty line, that poor people are poor because of their poor decisions. Poor people are poor because of their poor decisions. And there is this kind of um, 
belief that we have that uh, is a political belief, it's a social philosophy, but has kind of become somehow a part of a religious belief or philosophy that poverty indicates a lack of character in some way. That we, we look at wealthy people, whether we realize it or not, and kind of assume that they are better in some type of internal way, some type of character way than a poor person because we have bought into this idea that poor people are poor because of poor decisions. They lack character of some kind. But that's not entirely true. I, I, uh, I did some traveling this week, and so while I was traveling, I had an opportunity to kind of do what I love to do, which is go down some rabbit holes of, of research and thought. And I read an interesting uh, article this week about a study done in British Columbia in, in Canada where this community, this city, um, wanted to test some different ideas about the best way to combat homelessness. They had come to, to or they, they had, you know, realized that they were spending about $8,300 a year per homeless person in their city. And so they wanted to see if there was a better way to spend that money, allocate that money, a better way to help uh, people who were, were homeless. And so um, they decided that they would um, take people who had been homeless for at least six months and were not diagnosed with some type of mental disorder. So that was the qualifications, that they had to have been homeless for six months and, had, and, and were not diagnosed with some type of mental uh, mental disorder, and they gave those people in that study a one-time payment, cash payment of $7,500. They gave them a one-time payment of $7,500, and then over the next year, researchers checked in on them based on different criteria to see how they were doing. Now, based on the way that I've set this up, you probably know where this is going, but if I hadn't set it up and you didn't know where I was going... And I told you that a city decided to just give every homeless person $7,500. What are some of your initial instinctual thoughts to what homeless people would do with a one-time payment or cash infusion of $7,500? I think a lot of people, unfortunately, I think even a lot of Christians would assume that they would spend it on drugs and alcohol or, or something like that, some, you know, whatever vice you would want to, to pick. But what this study showed in particular, and it was only one sample size, but what this study showed in particular was that a lot of those assumptions that we have are not true. Here's what they found. They found that 70% of the participants that received this $7,500, have been homeless for six months, they found that 70% of the participants were food secure after one month, meaning that they did not have to worry about where their next meal was coming from. Of these participants, they found stable housing in an average of three months. Participants on average saved $1,000 of the $7,500 over a year. And spending on alcohol, cigarettes, and drugs went down by 39%. And what there was a lot of things that they took out of this study, but one of the biggest things that they took out of the study is that it is true that poor people make poorer decisions, but it's not because there is a lack of character as much as they have found that living with the constant stress of poverty lowers your IQ. 
So, so what they're discovering is that when the anxiety of where you will sleep or where you will eat is taken away from you, it turns out you make better decisions. And in sociology, this is called a scarcity mentality. That these people who were given these one-time payments were able to put down a deposit for first month or last month or security deposit on an apartment. And because they had an apartment, they were able to find a job. And because they had a job, they were able to save some money. There was just all kinds of things. But the base of all of it was is that we make worse decisions when we live with the anxiety of not knowing if we have some of the basic necessities of home and shelter and, and food. Now, what does any of this have to do with the story that we read today? Well, it actually has a lot to do because we have a man in this story, most likely homeless, who has been suffering from birth. So probably at least 30 to 40 years old, if not more. And Peter and John are on their way to church to pray. Based on their Jewish traditions, it's probably the third time that day that they're going to pray together. They see this man sitting there that I'm almost certain we'd have to assume they'd seen before. And they see him. And they recognize his need. They make eye contact in some way. This was their hometown, this was their temple, this was their place that they went. This could not have been the first time maybe they made eye contact with this man. But there was something different about this day. There was something different about this interaction or this moment. Why would Peter and John stop this time, this day, this week? Why would they stop and see him differently or respond differently to him than they had done all the other times before. It's a question worth asking. You drive probably the same route to get to church every week. You probably take the same roads, stop at the same red lights, see a lot of the same people. But there was something on this day for Peter and John about this man and this condition that was different. If you've been following along with the series, you know that Peter and John were not the same people that they had been their entire life. Peter, the brash coward, was no longer Peter, the brash coward. And the, the, the disciples and the apostles, that they were not the same people that they had been, even as quickly as a day or two before the story that we're reading today. And the reason that they were different was because they had been filled with the Holy Spirit. We read several weeks ago in Acts chapter 2 about the day of Pentecost and the power of the Spirit falling in the upper room. And so now these disciples, these Christians, were filled with the Spirit and it caused them to see the world differently. It caused them to respond to the needs of people differently. It caused them to assess their ability to help in a situation differently. And now they see this man that maybe they had seen hundreds of times before. But internally in Peter and John, we don't know this for certain, but I think it would be safe to assume based on the way that they acted, something had changed in Peter and John that they felt as if they could do something about it. That it was within their power, maybe not their power, but a power that they possessed in some way. It was within their power to be able to do something for this person that weeks and months and years up until that point, they did not believe that they possessed any kind of ability to do anything for this person. But now they did. 
They did. They noticed his condition and were compelled to do something about it. Compelled to do something about it. And so this is our first point from our story today, that as Christians, we should notice. We should notice. Our hearts should be moved because of our faith in Jesus Christ and what we know to be true about the gospel, that the only way to be saved is to lower ourselves to the lowest point and recognize that all we have to offer God is our sin. If every Christian comes to that point in order to come to faith, then there is never a people or a kind of person or a scenario where where any of us whose faith is in Jesus should feel superior to any other person. Not based on our income, our college degree, our physical ability or looks. Because the qualification, the only qualification in order to become a Christian is to realize that you are in need of a Savior. So we definitely shouldn't feel superior. We should see people around us who are hurting and are in need and our hearts should be moved with compassion like Jesus's was. And we should do something about it. Now, this is the point in the sermon where maybe typically I would say we need to do something about it. And so then I would take the next five or ten minutes and I would talk about how we should be generous with our money. Or we should take them into our home and feed them a meal. Or we should adopt a child. Or I would list all of the ways that socially we could be more responsible and help people. And we should. I'm not ignoring it because it's wrong. I'm just ignoring it today because it's not the example in this story. It's not the example in this story. The point of this story is not just that you should see or carry around a little bit more money in your pocket in case someone needs a little bit of money. Those things are true, but the point of this story is that if you are a Christian and you are filled with God's power, you are capable of providing a miracle. And that's different, right, than providing some money or taking them down to a gas station and buying a bag of chips or putting a tank of gas in someone's car. We should do those things. And there may be instances where we are the answer to someone's prayer. We are being a miracle by being helpful in those things. I'm not discounting any of those things, but if we read this story today and our takeaway is be more generous with people in need, we are missing the point of the story. Because the point of the story is that once Christians were filled with the Spirit of God, when they saw people who were broken, they believed that it was within their power, God's power in them, to pray for those people and for there to be miraculous healing in their body. And I told you when we started this series that we're going to be coming across stories that bring us out of our comfort zone and stretch us and maybe we've reached one of those for you today because it would certainly be easier if I just said notice more and when you do you know do something about it that is helpful but that would be a cop-out we have to address the fact this time and many more stories and sermons to come we have to address the fact that the first Christians prayed and miracles happened If we read the book of Acts and we come away from the book of Acts and say, and if we come away from the book of Acts and we don't feel as if we have more of God's spirit, more of God's power, if we aren't experiencing powerful prayer, if we're not, if no one is healed, if, if there are no miracles, we've missed something in the story. 
And I wonder what you think about that. I, w- I wonder what you think about that. You know, so often in my sermons, I say things like, no, maybe you weren't raised that way. And, you know, maybe you were raised, and I talk about how you were raised, and I think that's important. But today, I don't really want to say anything about how you were raised because it doesn't matter. You're here now. You're here now. And so I wonder how you feel about this idea that the, the example, the first Christians that we have that, that did something and had something that caused the message to spread like, to spread like wildfire, that's possible for you. You could live like that, that you could do something like that. And I wonder if there's any part of you that wants to participate. Is there any part of you that would want to pray for someone and watch a physical miracle in front of your eyes? I was praying on the way into church today, knowing what I was going to be preaching about, and I said to God, like, God, I don't... I don't, I don't want any, like, we could connect the dots coincidences. I don't want to hedge. I don't want to be like, well, you know, I mean, it could kind of be a miracle too, but we don't know. I mean, the doctor wasn't sure or what. I want to experience and witness undeniable, only God type of miracles. I want to experience that. This past Wednesday night, I drove to Springfield, Missouri to attend a, a prayer meeting at a church called James River Church. I've been following along for the last several months about what God was doing at, at James River. It's a great church. It's a huge church. I mean, it's, it's been around for, for 40 years. It's not a new thing, but uh, they are experiencing, just in this season of their church, they're experiencing a supernatural season, I guess maybe would be the, the word to use, of, uh, of miracles, like medical, physical miracles in their church. People are being physically healed, and... Um, they shared that night so many different testimonies of people, you know, they had videos of people who uh, couldn't walk that were leaping and jumping and laughing while it was happening. They were just so overjoyed at people who had been deaf, who could hear and just, just miraculous things. They shared so many testimonies. But at one point in the service, the pastor stopped sharing the testimonies, and he said, I just, you know, maybe as you're hearing these testimonies, maybe there's something in your life that you need a miracle for, and, and as you're hearing these testimonies, maybe you, your faith is, is excited right now, and you're believing this is possible for you, and so if you're here, and, you, and there, you need a physical miracle, I want you to just stand up right now in the service, and so all, I mean, there's probably 2,000 people in the room, just all around me, just people started standing up, you know, a couple of hundred people just started standing up, and then the pastor said, okay, is there, you see somebody around you standing up? You see him? All right, I want everybody to get up and just find somebody around you and, and pray for them and, I, and pray that God would heal them. And everybody got up and they just started gathering around and, and started praying for people. And it was so beautiful. It was so beautiful and so powerful and so normal. So normal. It wasn't, you didn't feel uncomfortable, it didn't feel strange, it didn't feel weird. That weird word can mean a lot, but everyone was very calm. Nobody was drawing attention on themselves, to themselves. They were just praying. And, and, and people were crying. It was, it was beautiful. And as I sat there and, just, and, and, and watched what was happening, I had to kind of look inward on myself and ask myself, Jason, 
do you want to be a part of church services like that? Do you want to be a part of experiences like that? Do you want to pray for people and they be healed? And I do. I do. And as we read through the stories of the first Christians, we are going to see miracles over and over and over again. Crazy miracles. Insane, unbelievable miracles. We're going to see it over and over again. And, um, you know, just even talking about this, I just wonder, like, even if you've ever even experienced a miracle in your life, an undeniable miracle in your life. I, I definitely haven't experienced many. You know, my grandmother, I talk about my Mimo Isaac sometimes. She had a book that she kept of all these miracles that she's experienced. And they lived a much more desperate life than I do. There's probably a key in that. But um, there's definitely one. Several of you know about this story, but I think about this often uh, many years ago, I was trying to think last night, I can't even remember how long ago it was, but Sadie, I brought a picture, but a lot of you know this story, but a lot of you don't. You've joined our church since then. But Sadie had a cyst that was growing on her tongue, and uh, we went to the doctor a couple of times, and, and it was getting worse. It started growing to where it was affecting her speech, and the doctor said, you know, there could be an expensive surgery we could do, but he couldn't guarantee that it wouldn't come back, and so we decided not to do that, and I remember calling my dad and my grandmother. Meanwhile, I was alive at the time. And I said, you know, I feel bad because as a dad, I want to take her to the hospital and, like, get it fixed. But at the same time, I just feel like we should pray. And so we prayed. Matter of fact, our church at the time was going through a 21-day prayer and fasting. And um, I, was a, I fasted for 21 days. I did not eat any food for 21 days. I felt like God was calling me to do that. And because of my sacrifice, even though I, even though I would stand up and say, God doesn't owe me anything, I'm not a super Christian, if I'm being honest, I thought, I haven't eaten for 21 days. Surely you're going to do what I want you to do, God. <laughs> and uh, we prayed. Man, I was so full of faith. And, and at the end of the 21 days, it was getting bigger, starting to bleed, and it was disgusting. And, and so... I said, okay, well, if we get to the end of the year, you know, I'm trying to be spiritual, but also think about deductibles. So if we get to the end of the year, <laughs> then we will, uh, we'll, if, if it's not healed by the end of the year, then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do the surgery, you know. And, I, and honestly, I just forgot. I wish I could say I was so full of faith. We just kept praying and believing, but I started eating again, and then I forgot and, like, stopped praying about it and moved on. And October, a, a Saturday morning, I think it was in October, I, I'm sitting downstairs and I hear Sadie just sprint downstairs. And she's like, Dad, Dad, Dad. And, and God had healed her. It was completely gone. There were no marks. There was no, there was no, you couldn't even see where it had been. The doctor said that if it ever went away, it would come back. To this day, it has never been back. And God healed her. And I wish I could have said in that moment that I said to my daughter, like, I knew it. I knew it was going to happen. I never doubted. But the truth is I, was, I had doubted and I, I had kind of given up on it, but God had not. And, and, and that's one of the few examples in my life where we prayed and God did something that we could not do on our own. And, and God miraculously healed her. And I think about that often. It's the only medical miracle that I have personally ever experienced. And I'm so grateful for that, but I'm also so dissatisfied with that. You know what I mean? Like, thank you, God, for that one story I've got to tell every time I need a story. But I'm so dissatisfied that I've only got one. Only got one. The same power that resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead lives in me. And I've got one. I got one. 
And I'm not claiming that every person who is prayed for will be healed or even should be healed. I don't know how that works. I'm not smart enough to figure that out. And I don't claim to know why God does what he does, but I do know that people who have put their faith in Jesus and have been filled with the Spirit of God should experience him in ways beyond our comfort zone and our understanding. And every miracle that Jesus performed while he was on earth, every single one, was to alleviate the suffering of others. He didn't show off or do magic tricks or fly through the air. He wasn't trying to draw attention to himself. Matter of fact, he was trying to deflect attention from himself. He performed the miracles that he performed to alleviate the suffering of people. And in every miracle, he gives us and gives them a taste of what's to come. That there will be a day when all of us as believers will go to a place where there will be no sickness and there will be no death and there will be no tears. And all of us will get to experience that. But when Jesus was on the earth and when his Christians and apostles and leaders were on the earth, there was also these moments where heaven invaded earth. His kingdom came to the earth and we got a taste of what was to come for all of us, that the pain and the suffering that we experience in this world would be alleviated. And I want us to be a church that's known for that. And I can't explain how it's going to happen, but I believe that it can, and I want it to. I want it to. So how should Christians respond to suffering? Well, we should see it. We should see it. We should be moved by it. And we should do something about it. And at a minimum, we should be more generous and be more hospitable and all of those things. We should do that. But sometimes what needs to be done is miraculous. And we want to be a part of that too. We want to be the kinds of people who say, God, I want to be a channel. I want to be a vessel. I want to be a pipeline, whatever you want to call it to heaven coming to earth, to your power and your miraculous spirit alleviating the suffering of the people around me. So that's, I mean, we could talk about that some more, but we definitely see that in this story. But let me talk about one more thing because it's actually my favorite part. The first part's awesome, but my favorite part speaks to how Christians should be viewed by other people, how Christians should be viewed by others. Peter and John are arrested, and they go to stand before the religious leaders. This wasn't necessarily like a Roman courtroom. It was just a Jewish courtroom. And so they go, and they stand before the religious leaders to defend themselves in front of them. And I love the leader's response. I just want to read it to you in verse 13, Acts 4, 13. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John For they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. I love that. I love that. Ordinary people who had been with Jesus. I can't think of a better description that I would want someone to say about me or to say about you. A couple of weeks ago, Robert spoke, and he said he was, uh, Robert Trago, a member of our church, was preaching, and in essence, he got up and he said, you know, I love this church, and the first time I met Jason, you know, he didn't impress me all that much, and I thought, like, oh, man. 
And he said, but I realized he wasn't trying to impress me. That's why he wasn't that impressive. <laughs> I was like, okay, kind of saved it. That's good. Um, but it's true. I, I think one of the most beautiful ways that you could be described or I could be described is incredibly ordinary. But we've been with Jesus. We've been with Jesus. No special training. It's okay if you've got training, degrees, that's fine. But it's not what identifies you. What identifies you is that you've been with Jesus. You've been with Jesus. And I don't normally give my sermons titles, but uh, if I was going to give it a title today, this would be my title, How to Be a Christian Who's Different But Isn't Weird. That would be my title. How to Be a Christian Who's Different But Isn't Weird. And weird's a hard word because weird can mean a lot of things. But what I mean by it, what I mean by it is like, unfortunately, and some of you won't know what I'm talking about, and that's okay, ignore what I'm about to say, but those of us who potentially have been around these types of things before, unfortunately, the, the Christians who are known for the miracles or the Christians who are known for the pipeline to heaven or the, the Christians who are known for the fire and the wind, they're not necessarily the funnest people to hang around. I could say that, potentially. They're, they, they're, it, it, there's, not, there's nothing really ordinary about them. I'm not, not saying we should be like everybody else, but I'm saying when you read the stories of the first Christians, you don't get the impression that, that these were people who were taking themselves too seriously. You get the impression that they were very ordinary. And I know I shouldn't paint with a broad brush, but, you know, we can experience the power of God. We can pray for people and have them experience the power of God. And, and we don't have to be strange. We don't have to be strange. We don't have to pray at a different volume than we would normally pray or pray using words we wouldn't normally say or posture our body in a way that we wouldn't normally posture our body. Peter and John are just walking into church and they just reach down and grab him by the hand and pull him up. Pull him up. And I'm certain that I'm certain that God will require me to get outside of my comfort zone, but that doesn't mean necessarily that He's calling me to be strange. Right? And if we want to experience more of God's power and spirit and, and more miracles, we are going to, all of us, have to stretch ourselves. But one of the things I love about the stories of the first Christians is that they seem to be really likable, going about living their life, and in the process, pray, love, and serve people. Matter of fact, they're going to the temple for the third time to pray that day. They're still following their Jewish customs. They're going to do their written prayers at three in the afternoon. And when they do, their normal, ordinary things, God shows up and does miraculous things. You don't get the impression that Peter and John are going to set up an Instagram page after this, you know, to fundraise or, or go live to, you know, do that. You don't get, they're just ordinary people who have been with Jesus. Just ordinary people who have been with Jesus. And I wonder how the people who, who are around you the most of the time would describe you. I wonder how the people who know you're Christians would describe you, would describe me. Sadly, I think that 
even though most people probably know that we're Christians, their expectations are pretty low about what they could expect from us. I'm like, yeah, they're, they, they go to church. Yeah, yeah, we don't go to church. They go to church. But they're expert. You don't get the sense that because somebody knows they live by me, that a miracle's an option. You know? But what, what if their expectations weren't low? What if their expectations were high because they knew that we were with Jesus? What if your neighbors actually believed that if they knocked on your door and you prayed for them, that they could be healed? What if the parents of the kids on your ball team knew that if you prayed for them, things could change? Because you're the Christian parents. What if when they talked to you, your words moved their heart? What if the employees who worked for you knew they could come to you when they were suffering and not only would you be compassionate, but you would pray for them? What if the people who didn't believe what you believed knew that when you prayed, things happened? Like, I don't believe what they believe. I'm not even sure how they believe all that. We disagree on so many different issues and socially and philosophically. I don't know. But when they pray... Something happens. Something happens. What if, what if they believed it? Your neighbors, your friends, what if they believed it? Let me ask you this question. What if you believed it? What if you believed it? I so desperately want this church to be filled with moms and dads and teachers and mechanics and coaches and business owners and accountants and employees who are incredibly ordinary I hope that you are so ordinary that people just walk right by you and miss you. I hope that's how ordinary you are. But I pray that in your ordinariness, you would experience the extraordinary power of God. And that every person who comes in contact with you in some way or another would experience that spirit and that power. And so that could look a lot of different ways, but specifically because of the story that we've read today, I just want to emphasize and highlight physical miracles. Physical miracles. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have the opportunity to take communion. We do this every week, but when you come forward to the table, you take the bread that represents the body that was broken. Jesus Christ's body that was broken, and you dip it in the juice. The juice represents the blood that was shed on the cross. And not only did Jesus going to the cross save your soul, but the blood that was shed and the stripes that were placed on him was also placed on him for your healing. For your healing. And so as you come forward today to take communion, if there is something in your body that is happening that there's suffering that you are experiencing because of some physical pain or diagnosis in your body. I want you, as you come forward to pray, uh, to, to take that juice, I want you to believe that this is not just a ceremonial thing, but that it's also an invitation for you to believe that you are healed because of the blood that was shed by Jesus Christ on the cross. That you don't have to be saved and suffering, even though that may be what God's plan is for your life right now, because he... We, we learn through suffering, but there's nothing wrong with us believing that we can be saved and healed. 
saved in here. And then also, we're going to have our prayer team up front. And I just have felt moved over the last 24 hours to pray for anyone in the, in the room, anyone in our church family who needs a miracle in their life, a physical miracle in your life. I don't know if it's something with your bones. I don't know if it's something with your hearing. I don't know if it's effects from a stroke or a heart attack. I, I, don't, I don't know if it's a diagnosis for a disease. I don't know what it is, but in a room this size, we definitely have people who are suffering from physical ailment. And so I asked our prayer team to just be prepared today to just pray for you. And I told them, I said, listen, let's don't hedge our bets. Let's just pray and believe big for God. We don't have to pray at a different volume. We don't have to push anybody down. We don't have to do any of those things. We just pray and believe that God is able. And so today, over these next two songs, as we take communion and as we pray together, if there, you don't, it doesn't have to be for a miracle. If you just need prayer, they would love to pray with you. But I specifically want to encourage anyone in the room who needs a physical miracle in your life to come forward and to allow us to pray for you. And who knows what God might do. And I'm expecting and believing a miracle today. All right, let's pray. God, thank you that in Jesus Christ, we did not just receive salvation, but we received healing for our bodies.